Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, Dr Janina Ramirez, Oxford art historian and BBC broadcaster, explores the intellectual, artistic and spiritual results of the influence of Celtic and Roman Christianity on the newly converted Anglo-Saxons in the 7th century. The episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 30th of September 2017. Hello, everybody. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. I've got a rather sad thing to start with, actually. So I'm half Polish, half Irish. And my last grandparent that was living was my Irish gran. um, And she died today. And I'm feeling really strange being in Dublin with you all talking about this today. Quite emotional. But In a way, it's a really cathartic thing because she was very proud of the fact that I worked on the material I work on. And she was very proud of the fact that I have spent a lot of my academic life trying to show fusion and coherence and togetherness about the sort of art and material that I cover. So I think she'd be really proud of me um, today talking to you here in Dublin. And I'm so grateful to you all for making me feel so welcome, Um, particularly as I'm going to be talking about something I I care passionately about. Um, My experience of coming to this world of early medieval um, insular arts, that coming together of Irish and Anglo-Saxon, was because I did Old English Literature as my undergraduate course. And um, the way it works, where it it did work at Oxford, was that if you did English Literature, you had to do Victorian, you had to do Modern, and you had to do Old English. They were the compulsory modules. So so the reading list arrived. I was terrified. I was coming from an inner city school in Slough. I thought, I'm not meant to be going to Oxford at all. I somehow slipped through the net. And the reading list said, read two works by Dickens, two works by Virginia Woolf and translate three poems from Old English into Modern English. And I thought, easy. It's ye oldie pubby and you knock the E off and we're all good to go. It won't take long. So I left the Old English poetry till two weeks before and then I opened up my um, guide to Old English literature and realised that it's an entirely different language. It's pretty much Germanic. Uh, It's got different letters designed to trip you up, like thorn and ash. Um, Runes come into the mix. It's all very confusing. So I cried and translated for two weeks. Um, Realised when I turned up on the first day of term that everyone else had gone out and bought a copy of translations and copied them out. But I hadn't done that. I had immersed myself (laughs) unwillingly into the language. And in that process of being exposed to the language and to the beautiful poetry, uh, the wanderer, the seafarer, the dream of the rude, these stunning poems. In the process of being exposed to the literature, I became incredibly curious about these people. This area of history that over, you know, where where I was um, growing up in Slough at my school, I don't think we ever discussed the Anglo-Saxon period. It's like there was a black hole in history. It was like the Romans left, then it gets interesting again in 1066, and everything in between is is not worth looking at. Um, So I barely knew what happened in that time. But the more I looked into it, the more I realised what an enigmatic, 
remarkable period it was, full of truly remarkable people. So I wrote a book, available to purchase after the talk, um, <laughs> about the saints who, to me, became these very three-dimensional characters coming out of these this time. Characters that were blending um, so many different areas of life. So they were political, they were economic, they were socially important human beings, but they were also these religious characters. And actually, my Polish-Irish upbringing was useful because, in a way, I felt I already had a bit of a head start on some of the religious context. And so I could make a bit more sense of the worldview that they, that they were clinging to. And so I became fascinated by this, this idea of an arriving Christianity, the, the idea that a Germanic pagan warrior elite, the Angles, Saxons and Jutes, were one round to a different ideological framework of Christianity. And what happened in that cultural collision? What resulted? The art that results is incredible. But what became very clear to me very early on was that as much as we in England are taught this magical date of 597 AD when St. Augustine arrives with Roman Christianity, as much as that is relevant and important, Equally, if not more so, the movement of Christianity from Ireland over into the north of England is profoundly important. And it is actually that wave that creates most of the exciting fusion that we see in the art that's created in that early wave. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about a bit today. <clears throat> but this is the context I start with. I'm sure you're all aware of it, but this is the context I start with when I try and give my students an understanding of why this time is so relevant. Why it's actually the, I think, the most important period in history we should be studying in school. Because it is the point at which the British Isles and Ireland are defined as entities and, and cultures. And, of course, the origin is this <laughs> this word of the Celts. Now, um, again, a bit of a hot topic, but I, I like to say again that, that say, talking about the Celts is a bit like talking about the Europeans. It's that broad, that uh, elastic, that it, it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Once you start to look at what these so-called united people of the Celts alike. They are, in fact, a set of very disparate and disconnected groups. And um, they are often engaged in violent hostilities between one another. I like to give the example of the Scottish clans. So you still have the legacy of wearing tartan to identify yourself as a particular clan from a particular area. And that is the sorts of um, rigid divisions that would have existed between these tribes. But there were things that did bind them together and unite them. Major things that bound them together were language. So the Celtic languages were mutually communicable. Different, different Celtic tribes could communicate with one another. Now, my, I, I've mentioned that, that I have Polish heritage. My mum describes being able to go across the border into the former Czechoslovakia and into Yugos, former Yugoslavia and communicate with people in those areas in a tongue that is... You know, that they can all understand with each other. And that is the sort of thing we're talking about with the Celtic dialects, that they could communicate with each other. But most excitingly for me, because I later re-identified myself as an art historian, <laughs> um, the art, the visual mediums and the sorts of ways that they visually express themselves are similar. 
And I'll, I'll show you this through a process of kind of comparing it with, with Germanic Anglo-Saxon art. But this is a great example. This is a, oh, look, I've got a, a little laser. Um, this is the Battersea Shield, first century. Um, uh, sorry, Desborough Mirror, sorry. What am I doing? <laughs> Desborough Mirror. So the Desborough Mirror, which is first century BC. And what it shows you is something that I'm sure you'll all be familiar with if you've been over to the, to the National Museum. But this idea that in the very early waves of um, Celtic settlement, we have the emergence of metalwork. And metal becomes this beautiful medium that is so expressive for Celtic designs, Celtic art. And it's so good because you can incise on the surface. So you can have areas that are smooth and then areas that um, refract the light. So chiaroscuro, this contrast of light and dark. But most significantly, of course, it's the designs, the patterns that we see repeated. And the most noticeable, of course, is the hall and spiral. The idea that actually these, these limits of a mirror or a stone, it's, it's not fixed. The spirals could potentially carry on outside of the boundaries. And that's what I love so much about Celtic art. It has this sort of idea that it could explode out of the space. And we see that going right back to um, Newgrange, to 3200 BC. We see these spirals, these halls that, that curve over the stone and push against the edges. And then another important one, the Turo stone, stone, of course. Again, similar patterns. And what, what's exciting is that when it gets to the limit, so here there's a self-imposed limit of the bracket around the edge, but when it reaches the limit, there is the suggestion that those curls, those spirals continue. So it is a, a wonderfully expansive style of art. Now things go, <laughs> things go very wrong in, in England in as much as the Romans come. I don't, I will, okay, I'm going to admit to you, people of Dublin, I don't like the Romans. <laughs> I, I like to sort of, I'd like to have them reassessed as the, the dictatorial oppressors of, of, you know, the early years. But they, they came and they imposed all the wonderful things that Monty Python tell us. They brought wine and aqueducts and roads. And that's all great. But in the process, they suppress the native population, which is a Romano-British Celtic uh, population. And they get as far as Hadrian's Wall. They have a little go at going a bit higher, but that doesn't work. The Picts aren't having it. So they settle with Hadrian's Wall. And um, in that process of transformation over about 400 years, they radically alter the, the complexion of what we would today call modern-day England. So they do impose roads and cities. The idea that you link cities together with roads, with aqueduct systems, and it's all frightfully convenient for when you have to move lots and lots of troops and armies up and down a country. And that has come to define England as a country. Most of our major cities are still based on Roman foundations. And... A lot of what happens as a result of this is defined by these early years, particularly in terms of power and hierarchy structures. The Roman system worked, so subsequent rulers try and reimpose that sort of structure of power and control. And um, 
what they also bring with them. And this I do find fascinating. They brought with them a rich soup, a casserole, if you like, of religions. Uh, There's a wonderful museum in York, up in the north of England, that has a whole selection of Roman finds, um, Roman statues, sarcophagi, memorial slabs. And what's so interesting is that in that very important northern city of York, you had so many different cults and religions coexisting. You had the original pantheon of... Uh, you know, the, the Olymp- uh, there they are, the Olympic gods, and then they're turned into the, the pantheon of Roman gods. You have um, Mars, Venus as a result of that, but you find temples to Isis. You know, again, a very unusual Egyptian goddess. You find um, Mithraism, the god Mithras, this strange sort of um, Near Eastern god who, who, uh, who is very popular within armies. But in that mix, you find Christianity. And it bubbles away quietly under the surface from about the second century onwards. What's intriguing is because England was so far north, it was the most northerly point of the empire, it was kind of safe to explore these eccentric cults and and religions. So Christianity beds in, in in England much quicker than it does anywhere else. So you get these really unusual early survivals. This is a church in Silchester, and um, it's thought to be the oldest surviving custom-built church. And it's got this strange altar space, the apsidal end, the little uh, alcoves, all the things you'd expect of an early custom-built church, but on the very, very edge of the Roman Empire. The earliest depiction of Christ comes out of England, not out of Rome, not out of the Middle East, but out of England. And it's this strange mosaic from um, Hinton St. Mary's in Dorset, which shows Christ here in the sort of philosophical guise. But the reason we know it, in lots of ways, he's hiding as a Roman uh, figure because he's got these pomegranates either side of his head. So pomegranates connected with Persephone and eternal life. But the only real clue is this behind his head, the Cairo, the first two letters of Christ's name in, in Greek. So an identifiable image of Christ, the earliest one. And the earliest surviving liturgical items. This is the Walter Newton Horde. I left my uh, last, I did a talk last night at nine o'clock in the north of England and I left uh, my hotel room at 4am in the morning to get to you guys. Um, And on the way, driving in my haze of tiredness, I passed Walter Newton, so I now know where it is. (laughs) It's on the M1 if anyone's interested. And, um, (laughs) And in this collection of finds, you see again the Cairo... You see um, vessels that would have held the Eucharistic wine and the Eucharistic host, second century, buried in England. So so there is this bubbling away of Christianity up in the north. And and interestingly, while Christians are being thrown to lions and and, rounded up and martyred on the continent, that's not really happening to the same extent in England. So it beds down, takes root. And then something dramatic happens. Dum, dum, dum. I like, I like this moment because, again, I love moments of cultural fusion. And this is what seduced me into studying the Anglo-Saxon period, was the arrival of these Jutes, Angles and Saxons here. There's a very immediate 
uh, answer to why this happens. It's called the Adventus Saxonum. And it happens around 410, 420 AD because Rome is under threat. And so the Roman Empire stripped back all their resources from the peripheries of the empire. There is a, a statistic that says that Hadrian's Wall, the most northernmost frontier of the Roman Empire, had up to 10 times as many soldiers as were stationed at any other frontier on the Roman Empire. They must have been really scared of the Picts. <laughs> the Picts must have been pretty impressive. Um, so they wanted to reuse these resources, so they pulled them all back. But this left a complete power vacuum. No civil servants, no administrators, no politicians. We're getting close to that at the moment, but uh, this, was, this was a while ago. Um, Everything's gone. And into that power vacuum, people wanted to uh, slip in and take advantage of, of what was being left behind. And there's mixed reports. Were they invited over as mercenaries? Very possibly. But we know that there is a mass influx of these Germanic people. And they settle incredibly rapidly within about a generation. It's a mass migration. And that mass migration transforms forever the complexion of England. This is why I get frustrated by arguments of national identity, because at any one point, you can put a pin in history and say, that is when there was an influx of lots of other people from outside in. And this was huge. It defi redefined everything. So the language, English, comes from this moment. Old English is a Germanic language. So the language itself changes. But the whole hierarchy, the whole system of society changes. Instead of <clears throat> roads and cities and aqueducts, we have tribal leaders, military warriors, the, the characters of Beowulf. They're living in massive timber huts. They're worshipping a completely different pantheon of gods, Thor, Odin, Freya. And it completely transforms England from this point onwards, 400 AD. But as a result of this transformation, something else starts to happen. There is a, a schism, a shift, if you like, in thought, which means, oh God, that's a bit fuzzy, isn't it? <laughs> Looks like my kids drew it with crayons, sorry. Not the best map. Um, but this, while this area is Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Different regions along this area continue to uh, adhere to, firstly, a Celtic, and, and in these particular, in these areas, a Romano-British Celtic set of practices, which includes Latin, Christianity, all those things. Um, but it also becomes a linguistic divide. So people on one side of this border speak a Celtic tongue. People on the other side of this border speak a Germanic Old English tongue. And this is a really crucial and critical moment. Um, why have I put two strange haircuts up? <laughs> because there is a gap now, a period, where from about 420 AD... England gets on with being Germanic and military and, and uh, having its pantheon of gods. Whereas Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, particularly in Wales and Cornwall, they are living in villas. They are setting up uh, stone monuments. They are teaching in schools Latin. They're preparing wine, Welsh wine. This is a fascinating concept for me. But they are making wine so they can have the Eucharistic uh, wine for the, for the practices of Christianity. 
And it's out of this moment that we get the movement of Christian ideas over to Ireland. And one of the chapters of my book is about St. Patrick, an incredibly elusive character who could be one of two characters or could have existed within a period of about 200 years. So he's, he's pretty uh, difficult to pin down. But the idea that there are Christians, missionaries moving over from mainland England over into Ireland and taking Christian ideas with them is absolutely essential. It makes such a big difference to what then starts to happen in Ireland. And um, again, I get it's slightly it's different talking to uh, English students about English history and then bringing it over to Ireland and saying, you know, the Synod of Whitby, what a huge deal that was. Bede writes about this massive moment in 664, which is when the, the Celtic church and the Roman church have to bring together their differences. And a lot of students struggle with the idea of why. Why was there an issue? Why was there any difference? They're all Christians. So why was there this, all this angst and this anxiety about Celtic Christianity and Roman Christianity? Now, I don't want to reduce it to haircuts, but I will, <laughs> because it illustrates the point. <laughs> um, the Christianity that starts to evolve in Ireland is of a very different complexion to the one that has been spread over from the continent. And there are lots of very obvious reasons for this. The Romans didn't get to Ireland. So there isn't the same structure and hierarchy of the church that there is in Roman orders. So you don't have the rigid association of a city with a bishop, with priests, with parish churches. It's not made that rigidly. They also brought over um, these, these sets of ideas that were absolutely, completely cutting edge and off the time at 420, 450 AD. But the presence of Germanic pagans in England meant that it was quite difficult to stay in contact with Rome throughout those periods. And so the sorts of, of ideas and, and um, practices that it continued to evolve in the Celtic church were out of sync with the papacy. The church is an ever-changing entity and memos are being pinged out across the place saying, oh no, we're not doing it that way anymore. We're doing it like this. And if you stop receiving those memos, you, you get out of sync. So one of the big ones was, we're dating Easter differently. So start doing that. That doesn't come, that doesn't reach over to the Irish tradition. The other one was about haircuts. Now, this is a more fundamental question that I'm going to deal with in terms of monasticism, but this is known as the Petrine tonsia. I call it the donut. It's the familiar one we all know with a nice shiny head on the top and the donut around the side. This is the Celtic tonsia, and I call this the shaved mullet because you shave the head all the way back and then leave the hair to grow long at the back. They come from different traditions. They come from different roots. But the one that gains the widest dissemination and the greatest popularity is the Petrine tonsia. And that's the one that Benedictine mon monasteries across Europe are all subscribing to. They're all signing up for that one. But in Ireland, they're not. They're doing it differently. They have their hair like this. This might seem like a small incidental difference, but what I want to think about is the idea that actually this is, 
this is provocative and and inflammatory to the church in Rome because what they're seeing is visible difference. It's uh, we all judge each other on our appearances. You know, if somebody has piercings or tattoos or they wear their hair a certain way, we make assumptions about the way that they appear. And that is absolutely the case with these haircuts. They were defining the Celtic church as different to the Roman church. And it was much more divisive than it seems when it's reduced into the pages of Bede. And it's divisive because of um, the whole package. This is a wonderful um, <laughs> representation of an Irish monk. Now, we see quite a few of these where uh, carvings or um, manuscript illuminations try to reduce an Irish monk almost into sort of cartoon form. And the way to do it is you put them in a massive cloak because they would have worn great big thick cloaks to uh, go on their missionary activities. They carry a a walking stick, which incidentally becomes the foundation of the Bishop's Crozier. So when you see Bishop's Croziers for the rest of the time, they're all coming from these Irish walking sticks. And they carry a bell. There's the bell. And the bell is essential because unlike the very straight, clear, defined road system that you have in Roman territories, in Ireland, it's, it's a much more organic uh, meandering through tribal uh, tribal villages, tribal um, communities across the landscape. And this is what these early Irish monk monks become very good at. Instead of staying in one place, instead of being fixed in their monasteries, they go out. And they go out ringing the bell to call people together. And once they've called people together, they can read the Gospels to them, they can preach to them, they can talk to them. So the landscape actually defines this sort of monasticism. It is because Ireland is Ireland that this sort of monasticism arises. And we have wonderful surviving treasures that hint at this, that this is, this is deeply rooted. So the bell shrine of St. Patrick. Now, uh, different forms of analysis have been done on this bell. The exterior is definitely 11th century. We can say that. And you can see that from the style of the, the knotwork and the the gems, the beasts on the top. But the bell inside is very possibly 4th or 5th century. So it is likely that it could have been associated, if not with Patrick, but certainly with the first wave of, of missionary activity into Ireland. Just that idea of the bell, I think, is so profound. The ringing of the bell to call people together. I think that's really, really important. Um, I went here recently. Now, who's been? I'm sure loads of you have been. Yeah. Oh, look, you even know what it is from this picture. Aren't you great? So uh, I went as the opening to a series I was making for the BBC called Britain's Millennium of Monasteries. And the idea was we were going to tell this story of monasticism evolving across a thousand years. And the opening sequence was going to be Skellig Michael because it's so dramatic and it sets the story up so brilliantly. And when, we, when my researcher was setting this up, she said, um, I'm hearing all sorts of difficult things from Skellig. I'm hearing that it's hard to get to. Um, I'm hearing that David Attenborough tried to go three times and he couldn't. Um, I don't think we need to worry about it, but just worth thinking about. So they put us all on a plane, flew us over to Cork, and then we drove the, the wonderfully long and exciting journey over <laughs> to Skellig. <laughs> exciting it was. People driving on the wrong side of the road. That was interesting. Um, and then we got there. 
stayed in the pub opposite and got up on the first, we were there for two days, so we had two attempts to get over. First morning, got up and went down to the harbour and it was crystal clear, absolutely like a mirror. And we went to the boat, went, yay, let's go to Skellig, let's go. And he said, no, you can't, you can't, it's too rough. I went, doesn't look very rough. I'm not taking it, it's too rough, it's dangerous, you can't go. So we were disappointed, but we went off and had some other adventures and it was great. Second day, last chance, let's go, let's go down, even calmer. So we woke up in the morning thinking, this is perfect, there's no, no problems here. Again, it's too rough, you can't go. And we said, look, this is ridiculous, this is the opening sequence, this is so dramatic, we need this to a bit, Star Wars hadn't been yet, we were going we were gonna to be there first, this was going to be amazing. And um, so we said, just take us out in the boat, I'm sure it's fine, don't worry about it, just get us out in the boat. So we got out in the boat, and of course, as those of you who've been there will know, as soon as you get out of the harbour, my God, the oceanic waves are like this. Um, I had the pleasant experience of being put in the back of the boat near to the engine, which was pumping out diesel. Uh, I was going all over the place and it became very clear as we got close to Skellig that we were not getting onto this uh, aquatic, subaquatic mountain because the, right, the waves just smash on the sides when it's like that. And it's so dangerous. You have to pull up to that staircase and leap out. And it was obvious it was going to be very, very difficult. So the director said to me, okay, we're going to have to do all your pieces to camera on the boat with Skellig bobbing around in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever look at the rushes that we filmed on that boat you'll see that I, I I've just been being sick off the side of the boat and then I stand up going so the word monos means alone completely green um it was it was terrible and then then we got this strange calm in the waters and and they said do you want to have a go do you want to try and get onto the island so, yes, of course. So he pulled up alongside, threw all this equipment out, threw all the humans out. Everybody scampered up the waves. We're high-fiving and jumping around on the rock at the top. And then he turns the boat away and he, he, he goes driving off. goes, I'll try and come back for you. <laughs> so we had no idea if we were getting off. But, um, but it was an amazing experience. And, of course, once you get on there, there's this dramatic incline that is treacherous very treacherous. There's a few points where I was, I wasn't in these boots, you'll be pleased to know, but I was worried that I was going to fall off the edge. But the thing that you see when you get up to the top, of course, is, is magnificent, um, the beehive cells. And, you know, when I describe to people how these things are made, that they are done with this dry stone walling technique, there's no cement, there's nothing holding it together. It's 1,200 years of functioning architecture that still keeps the elements out, still keeps the water out. One of the gentlemen that travelled with us to the island had slept on the island for a month, I think, and he'd used these cells and he says it's absolutely fine. It's cold, but it's fine. You know, it does, it does work still. And they, the, there was a symbolism to the way these cells are perched up on that slope that really struck me because what I found so interesting was I'd been looking at the evolution of monasticism from the Desert Fathers. And of course, with the Desert Fathers, what they're doing is they're running away from cities. They're getting away from cities. They're going into the desert to be hermits, to get away from everybody. But there's an immediate irony to this. As each hermit runs out 
to go and set themselves up. Lots of other people follow them. And so these poor hermits end up surrounded by lots and lots of people who want to follow them and and adhere to what they're doing. So these sort of loose communities grow up. And that's what you've got at Skellig so profoundly. There's So the word, as I said in my piece to camera, (laughs) the word monos, monk, it does mean alone. But it's the idea of coming together to be alone that you see so effectively at Skellig. These are individual cells designed to hold one monk each, but they are snuggled up together in that strange sense of community that they, they, you know, they would go to the communal church, they would eat together, but then they would go away and be alone. And that is is such a, a... basis for me, a a really clear indication of what Celtic monasticism was about. And and I love the fact that if that's too comfortable for you, there is the alternative hermitage, which is up on the top peak for the really hardcore, those who are absolutely dedicated to getting alone. (laughs) Um, But there were other things that came through in my experience on Skellig, which was that I interviewed the archaeologist who'd excavated the cemetery there. And he, he really, it was really unsettling and upsetting, actually, because he told me about the bones that they'd, they'd excavated. The oldest was about 40, 45, but there were children's bones there that were as young as nine or 10. And the thing that really got me was that every skeleton they examined showed evidence of physical trauma. Now, this might be trauma to the back, trauma to the shoulders, but most dramatically, it was trauma to the bones of the feet, Now, he explained this by saying they are walking up and down this steep incline, carrying all the things they need. But the the idea that their feet bones are cut suggests that they're not just cutting through the flesh and the skin of their feet. They're cutting into the bones of their feet from walking on these, these stones over and over again. And that that upset me. It sort of it, it. It just. It's a form of asceticism that is so extreme. The idea that you want to suffer like Christ is is at the heart of Christian piety. But this idea of extreme suffering, uh, it's it's something that again I think we can we can start to see as being slightly maverick. The Roman Church were a bit uncomfortable with this sort of piety and this sort of um, asceticism. They wanted to control it more. And the Benedictine movement is all about control. When St. Benedict writes his rule, it's like a military uh, exercise. The monastery is organized under decanus. They are the deans. That's a military term. A, a, A man, a soldier who's in charge of 10 other soldiers. So these monks are being rigidly put into this system. All Every hour of their day is organised. Everything that they eat is organised. Everything they do in a Benedictine monastery is prescribed. But in the Celtic church, that is not the case. There is such variety at this stage. And there is a much more uh, organic evolution of monasteries, depending on location and depending on, on the people involved. Um, See, so... so we start to see these sorts of pockets of monastic communities that appear. And they're often based on tribal connections, familial connections. So a family might all might dedicate all of their male children to a particular uh, organ, uh, to a particular monastery. And, and they, they almost emerge as a different sort of, of, of tribal life. Um, 
And this is so old, this map. I've been using this map for 20 years to illustrate this point, and I've yet to find a better map that does it. So please forgive the sort of BBC computer from the 80s style of, of uh, graphics that we've got going on here. But this map really shows for me the coming together of these different approaches that hits its peak in the north of England in the six, around the year 650-700. Now, if you follow this arrow here, this is the, this is the Roman Celtic uh, areas that were left behind after the Romans leave in 420. And it's from this direction, we don't know exactly, but it's from this area that Patrick and those like him seem to start bringing Christianity over to Ireland. And, and then it, it beds down in important places like Durrow and Kells. But it shifts north and into this area that's the Dalriata region, this area. Uh, I, I do a lot of work on Vikings. And um, again, I think we've lost our connection with the water and with the seas. We tend to think of water as a barrier. It wasn't. In the ancient world, water was a motorway. It was the quickest and easiest way to get from A to B, jump in a boat, move across. And the idea that this Dalriata region actually stretched across the water, that, was no, uh, that, that wasn't a barrier to the fact that they were connected with one another. And this number two character, who is this that is moving over to Iona? This is Columba. And uh, the Catac of Columba, the Battle of the Book big important moments for how Christianity moves back over into this northern area of England. And it beds down in places like Whithorn before it eventually moves over through St. Aidan to the wonderful tidal island of Lindisfarne. Has anybody been to Lindisfarne? Oh, yay, loads of you, fantastic. Great, everyone else who hasn't gone, go, okay? These people, they know what they're doing. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable remarkable place. My husband, um, when we, for our first Valentine's together, surprised me with a trip to Lindisfarne in February. And I thought it was freezing cold. It was absolutely bitter and awful. But I thought, yes, you're a keeper. If you're taking me to Lindisfarne for Valentine's, you're definitely a keeper. Um, but yes, so it's, it's tidal, which fits with the Celtic tradition of being cut off, uh, separating yourself from the temptations of the world. Um, and yet it is absolutely poised on the edge of the Germanic warrior world. Right across the water, Bamborough Castle, the stronghold of the Northumbrian uh, royal family. So it is this pivotal moment where the Celtic church and the, Nor and the uh, Germanic warrior class are staring across the water at each other. But then you have this other wave, and this is 597, the arrival of Gregory the Great's mission with St. Augustine. And they come down here into Kent, and they have the Petrine tonsia. They follow the Benedictine monastic rule. They are the army of Christ, and they move north through different individuals, but particularly through Paulinus, coming up to this area here in York. And what this map in its clumsy way is trying to show is that around this year 650, there is a cultural and uh, artistic and intellectual clash between two quite different strands of Christianity. And it's played out up here in this Anglo-Saxon kingdom 
of Northumbria. Now, it's been referred to as a Northumbrian golden age, a renaissance, um, but it's, it's absolutely fundamental. It, it's very important when studying this period that, na that national... Uh, na that these different uh, national identities we think we have as English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, they slip into the scholarship. And, and it bothers me. I noticed it right from when I was an undergraduate studying the Book of Durrow. You think you're reading something objective and academic and scholarly, but sometimes the subtext of it is about national agendas. Oh, it's Irish. No, it's not. It's English. And it, and it sort of pulls the, the, the argument apart. But actually what we have is a completely fluid movement of people. Irish monks are moving across the waters rapidly. Roman monks are moving up. They're coming together. They're interacting with one another, communicating and appreciating each other at places like Whithorn and Iona. But again, there is this divisive moment of the Synod of Whitby 664. And it's important. It happens at Whitby, which is the monastery of my favourite saint, Saint Hilda. Hilda of Whitby, who is amazing. She spends half her life as an Anglo-Saxon warrior princess and the other half as the head of a double monastery of men and women. Um, she has m so much power within the church. It's a, it's a unique moment in, in, in history where you know, women could wield this sort of power within the church. But the ultimate uh, argument is which form of Christianity is Northumbria going to take? Is it going to take Celtic Christianity or is it going to take Roman Christianity? And again, it all goes down to politics and familial ties. But the King Oswe wants to break with his father, Oswald, who'd supported the Celtic church. So he gives the thumbs down to the Celtic church and the thumbs up to the Roman church. And that is a defining moment. Um, It has a profound effect on the sorts of art that starts to come out of, of this area. So we see wonderfully uh, syncretic artworks coming out of this period. There's a term that's been developed, which is insular art, which means art off the aisles. And it's a way of trying to account for the fluidity of ideas and artistic uh, exchange that's taking place between Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Cornwall, England. Objects like this, the Tara brooch, one of my favourite objects, it shows this sort of syncretism. In its style, it's a penannular brooch, which we can see over in the Scottish borders. Um, there are elements, panels on this, uh, things like this dragon head here that seem to be nodding towards Germanic zoomorphic animal art. But then, of course, you've got these wonderful Nilo um, halls and spirals that are coming straight out of a Celtic metalworking tradition. Um, you can see that illustrated here. You have two facing interlaced beasts. That is a classic Germanic Anglo-Saxon metalworking technique. And those two beasts are straight up against the Celtic knotwork. So they're, they're related to one another. They're placed alongside one another. But it's in manuscript art that we see this fusion most effectively. I am passionate about manuscripts. I get so excited when I get to touch vellum. And I am allowed to touch it, people. You don't have to wear gloves. This is the... Oh, no. <laughs> Um, the, the main ruling that's taken place across all the major, uh, a lot of the major libraries now is if 
if vellum is handled with clean, gloveless hands, it actually causes less long-term damage. And this is, I've been witness to this and I'm confiding in you, all of you. (laughs) I was in, uh, I won't name the library, but I was in a particular monastic library working with a colleague. He was working on a 14th century Bible. I was working on an Anglo-Saxon manuscript and we were wearing white gloves which was the the way we did it at that stage. And I heard from across the room, as he went to turn a page, and he'd ripped the page. And it's because your fingertips have lots and lots of senses in them. And they tell you the amount of pressure you need to apply when you're dealing, handling things. When you put thick white gloves onto those, you can't tell how much pressure you're exerting on the page. And it can lead to that sort of damage. So it clean... Clean hands are the best way to handle vellum, but um, in some cases we can't handle it at all. So the Catarch of Columba, such an important manuscript, ground zero for you know, the insular manuscript tradition. Um, and it's, we, it's, it's usually housed within this reliquary, but this is a page from it. And the reason I'm showing it to you is because there's this wonderful technique that starts to become a feature of manuscripts in the north of England, which is a technique known as diminuendo. And if there's anyone musical in the room, you'll know that the musical term diminuendo means to get quieter. In manuscript illumination, it means to get smaller. So can you see the large letter becomes smaller? And this is something that, that, that seems to come over from Ireland into the north of England and bed down and make a big impression on manuscript illuminators. So much so that when we come to the very controversial book of Durrow, the first of these, piece, these works of art, these, they're called the, the, the insular manuscripts, and there's about 14, 15 of them, of these highly illuminated, beautiful manuscripts. We can see the Book of Kells being in this tradition, the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Codex Amiatinus, and the Book of Durrow, but there are, there are not many of them. So we end up having to draw a lot of our evidence out of what remains. I often say it's like doing a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle with just 10 pieces, and you sort of have to fill in the gaps a bit. But the Book of Durrow for me, is the ultimate expression of the fusion between Celtic Christian ideas, Germanic pagan art and culture, and new incoming Roman tastes. For a start, the very medium of a book itself, that is something that the Germanic Anglo-Saxons wouldn't have encountered. They were not using manuscripts to record their ideas. They were an orally literate society. They passed on law codes, histories, sagas through word of mouth, not through writing them down. But religion, but Christianity is a religion of the book. It needs this weird object, a book, at the heart of it. And I often think how strange it must have been when St. Augustine arrived in Kent or Columba arrived in Iona, carrying a cross and a book, two things that the Germanic pagans had no use of. They didn't know what the cross stood for. And a book that when it was opened, the people opening them, these priests, these monks, would say, in this language that you can't read, Latin, in this script that you can't read, is the secret to eternal life. I mean, I know I'm making it sound like an episode of Indiana Jones, but that as an idea, I think is very profound. If you haven't, you know, if if you're not a culture that prizes the making of vellum, the writing down of ideas through ink, then this is a a big change for the Anglo-Saxons. 
but they embrace it quite quickly and they embrace it through their relationship with other uh, other religious groups like those at Iona and at Lindisfarne. So the Book of Durrow is divisive because, of course, we don't... It ends up in Durrow, but we don't know where it's been along that journey. Books are mobile. They move around a lot. And trying to pin them down to a particular place of manufacture or a particular location can be difficult. And the argument goes that in the illustrations, the illuminations of the Book of Durrow, we see a fusion between Anglo-Saxon techniques and Celtic techniques. And I think you can see that right from this example. First of all, you've got diminuendo, the massive initial going into the smaller script. It goes down. So that suggests this, this influence from Ireland. But if you look at this face, uh, well, for a start, you've got um, animal faces peeping out. So there's a sort of dragon face there. But on this page there is this wonderful Celtic knotwork all the way over the surface. And yet the colour palette they've chosen is gold and garnet, the most prized mediums of the Anglo-Saxons when they made their cloisonné metalwork. So you're seeing this sort of fusion. You're seeing it everywhere. There's these knots around the edges, but then it's balanced out by these symmetrical panels of geometric squares, which is very Germanic, coming straight out of Sutton Hoo and those sorts of examples. And then you've got Celtic halls in the centre, but look at these backbiting beasts. Can you see the animals? Look at them. There's the eye and it's biting through the leg there. Straight out of a Scandinavian, Norse, Germanic tradition, these animals biting each other, Ooh, all on the same page. I, mean, I get excited when I see this sort of fusion. Um, and then look at St. Matthew. <laughs> I've often thought I would not like to bump into St. Matthew in a, in a dark street. He looks a bit creepy. He, um, he has the Irish tonsure, interestingly. He has the, as I call it, the shaved mullet. Um, and around the edge, we have some nice sort of traditional knots. But look at his cloak. His cloak is gold and garnet cloisonné. Again, if you ha um, I've got the Sutton Hoo shoulder clasps up as an example, but if you were to put this alongside that sort of gold and garnet cloisonné that we find in pagan Germanic warrior graves, the parallels are so clear. There must be a similar artist plucking source material from different examples to find the inspiration to make this manuscript. Um, and they do things so differently. So on the continent, in Roman manuscripts, in Greek manuscripts, you have the evangelists and their symbols. So the lion is Mark, the eagle is John, the calf is Luke, and Matthew is the man. But you often have the scribe at the bottom, and he's sitting there looking very windswept and thoughtful at his desk. And then the animal or the, or the, the symbol is hovering in clouds above his head. Only in the insular manuscript tradition do we strip out all the human thing and leave these iconic-looking beasts floating in the centre of pages. So this is the lion, believe it or not. It is. It's not a wolf. It's a lion, believe me. Um, and then the eagle. Look at this. No attempt at realism. This is symbolism. It's reflecting something else. But that looks so much like Merovingian, continental, Germanic brooches of, of eagles. And again, this golden garnet over the surface. And then you have the calf. Now, that spiral, that hall and spiral that you see on the hip, you see in, in Celtic sculpture, but also in Pictish sculpture as well. 
So in this one manuscript, in this one book, it's become a magnet for all these different influences. And that's why I love it. It's not a divisive artwork. It's a unifying fusion of ideas. And that, for me, expresses why this time is so exciting, because people are bouncing ideas off each other. They are interacting and appreciating one another and exchanging ideas and creating great artworks as a result. Oh, where am I going the wrong way? I wanted to, to show you just briefly the Lindisfarne Gospels, because for me, this is the, the high point of this sort of cultural fusion between the Celtic and the Roman church, focused on St. Um, Cuthbert, that character who was both an Anglo-Saxon warrior, knight, and the monk of Lindisfarne. And in this, you see all these ideas coming together in exquisite expression. Celtic knots, zoom, uh, in fact, I will demonstrate it by showing you this. This is a carpet page. And on this one carpet page, you can see gold and garnet cloisonne, like the Germanic Anglo-Saxon metalwork. You can see walls and spirals, like those on Celtic metalwork. You can see different styles of Christian artwork. So this is a, called the Kingston brooch, and it's got a cross running through the centre of it, and that is being repeated on the carpet page. And you can see the influence of Rome. This is an abstracted version of the highly realistic sorts of evangelist portraits you've got on the continent. They are in control of their artistic sources. They are in command of them. They understand them. They know what they're doing with these symbols and with these different techniques. And that is exciting, and it leads to the most extraordinary outpouring of art. Thank you, everybody, for listening to me so, so kindly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.